Before we get started today, I have to apologize for missing the scheduled upload last week. There was a personal emergency that unfortunately distracted me from the recording. However, with that out of the way, welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 32, The Geography of War. This episode will be my best attempt at laying out and explaining the major geographic features that defined the Civil War, more or less focusing on the physical borders of the Confederacy east of the mighty Mississippi River. To a degree, this may well overlap with a bit of explaining military strategy, but only in the ways defined and controlled by physical space. Now, to be upfront, this involves a lot of words trying to explain what a few pictures can show better, but I'm no artist. That said, all of these geographical features are easily visible in your online map of choice. The shape of the Confederacy lay at the mercy of water. The very factor which acted as the economic arteries of the would-be nation also defined it physically. To begin with, any observer should immediately note the broad swath of the Atlantic and her proud daughters, the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico. Most of the greatest cities of the Confederacy set on, or very near, the coastline, including Charleston, Mobile, and New Orleans. Richmond, the capital of Virginia, and soon the Confederacy as well, had the unusual distinction of avoiding the sea directly. Instead, it lay some miles up the James River from the sea, with the cities of Petersburg and Norfolk occupying the best harbors. We'll return to this point, but for the moment we should look at the land immediately between the Confederate and Union capitals. Between Richmond and Washington, D.C., a series of four wide bays, or really great tidal estuaries, slice the land up. Each one offers access a long way inland, but also blocks transportation to a degree. Each gives way to a river, and these rivers are not necessarily very navigable far inland. At the time, they were as much a barrier to commerce as anything. This contributed in part to the major cultural gap between the wealthy and sophisticated, but often virulently pro-slavery, Tidewater region, and the poorer and more insular districts far inland. But let us go over the four most significant rivers quickly. The James River meets the sea at the famous Norfolk naval base, and it flows southeast as do all of these rivers. Several notable cities comfortably existed next to the James, including those mentioned, Richmond, Petersburg, and Norfolk. The James was therefore the most economically and strategically important river in Virginia. North of it, the York River forms a shorter channel of its own. Although not nearly so significant as the James, it creates an isolated peninsula, which today holds the city of Newport News. This would eventually become a pathway for McClellan's army to march on Richmond. Beyond, the Rappahannock twists and turns its way inland, coming within a few miles of the Potomac, the last of our rivers. For its part, the Rappahannock will form the military front for much of the war, and it leads towards the town of Fredericksburg. That city lies almost exactly halfway between Richmond and Washington, and so Fredericksburg will become a prize of a titanic and brutal struggle in 1862. However, its strategic importance was lessened because the railroad north only went as far as nearby Acquia Creek, not onward to the Washington area. 
The Potomac doesn't twist so much as it occupies a huge curve ranging from Washington, D.C. out to the sea. This offered a convenient passage in the era of sailing vessels and steamships, and the headwaters of the Potomac flow from the far side of Maryland. However, spanning the river with rails proved difficult in this era. It seems that at the outbreak of the war, no rail connection went over the waters near or south of Washington, and one had to go to western Maryland for a continuous route. Now, this was no great matter in peacetime, as passengers could easily catch a ferry over the river, or use one of the existing footbridges, but it hindered military traffic until improvements were made. The various peninsulas were, from the Confederate point of view, difficult to defend and inviting to attack. However, they would ultimately give the Union nearly as much grief to take and hold. Though there are some good ports, there are few, and they offer few connections into the interior except those which lay far from federal power and were easily held by the Confederacy. But the rivers are also relatively shallow, and so deep draft warships, therefore, couldn't easily move upriver. Now this last point probably seems like a very great advantage to the defender, but in the end it would give the Confederacy nearly as much grief as the Union. Although the roads between the two cities of Richmond and Washington sufficed before the war, indeed, it would on most days have been a short and simple rail journey, the pressure of war put crushing weight upon the hundred miles between them. Much of this would be raided, burnt over, dug up, blown to pieces by explosive shells, or otherwise ruined. Each of the rivers, and the numerous streams and tributaries, formed a potential defensive point in wartime while bridges and fords turned into potential centers of attack or resistance. Meanwhile, the ground on either side of the rivers turned into many of the battlefields and campgrounds that caused the aforementioned ruination. Moving on to a much less military significant site, Virginia's eastern shore is a continuation of the large peninsula that forms the eastern part of Maryland and also the state of Delaware. It also helps shape the Chesapeake Bay, Although not poor, it also had nearly no military value and immediately fell into federal hands. It would remain largely irrelevant for the war. Journeying south along the Atlantic, the size of the rivers and bays drops off relatively quickly as one goes onward. Although the North Carolina bays remain nonetheless significant, especially as they were reasonably well connected by rail to the Virginia front, they also never achieved the importance of the greater ports during the war. The most important were Albemarle Sound and the Noyce River, upon which New Bern sits. At the southern end of the state, Wilmington faces the comparatively narrow channel of the Cape Fear River, objectively the best-named river in human history. Large stretches of North Carolina's coast lay protected by barrier islands, which cover the coastline here and there across much of the south. These create numerous complicated channels with the ocean, and they would complicate federal efforts to enforce a blockade, while at the same time making running that blockade far more feasible. But Wilmington's specific significance also lay in the fact that the northbound rails used a different grade from the southbound rails. This meant that cargoes had to change cars every time, which undoubtedly annoyed everyone and probably made a lot of money for workers in the city. Unfortunately for the Confederacy, this slowed transportation immensely and greatly complicated efforts to move equipment or supplies. South Carolina and Georgia 
have only two significant coastal sites between them, as far as the Civil War goes. Now, Charleston we've discussed aplenty, but going forward it may not come up again for some time. Despite its political significance, the city had relatively little impact on the course of the war. The Union Navy shall try to close it off, but will in the end choose to invest its resources elsewhere rather than spend the time and blood needed to thoroughly reduce its defenses. The other rivers in South Carolina's coast mostly lay far from rail, and were, in any case, marshy and often less settled areas, not always useful as ports. Charleston looms so large in the history of the state because that location controls access to a series of rivers and lakes that stretch almost to the Appalachians. However, in the context of war, it held no great industry, and it was the key to no other strategic points. Ships will slip inside until the waning days of the war, but with decreasing frequency and decreasing economic significance. Savannah, meanwhile, sits on a tall bluff atop the Savannah River and, you guessed it, controls access to a series of rivers and lakes that stretch almost to the Appalachians. However, Savannah lies some distance upriver from the Atlantic. Its location sits on dry ground and is indeed far more convenient for shipping and urban life, but several islands dominate the mouth of the river. This fact hardly escaped Washington. Way back in 1812, the government built Fort Pulaski there at the mouth of the Savannah River. This was, in fact, in the same wave of fortification that produced Fort Sumter and control of the site, held the ability to choke off Savannah, regardless of who controlled the city. Numerous small channels and islands then formed the remainder of the Georgia coast, leading to Jacksonville, the only Atlantic port for Florida. However, Jacksonville at this time was still a relatively small and unimportant town. Due to some quirks in the rail system, a cargo would have to change trains at least twice, perhaps more, and take an excessively roundabout path merely to reach Savannah, and no alternate route existed. Every Florida cargo had to go through that city to reach outside of the state. This made Jacksonville a much less useful port for blockade runners as well. The Long Peninsula of Florida might at first glance seem like a huge advantage to the Confederacy. But remember that at this time it was thinly settled by Americans, who had violently shoved out the Native American inhabitants through the brutal Seminole Wars a generation earlier. No significant cities lay south of the Panhandle, which contained its plantation economy as well. Although the peninsula still served to lengthen any voyage that might otherwise attack the Gulf Coast, the Confederacy remained entirely unable to support a military effort there, base a fleet on its shores, or otherwise hinder the Union. Pensacola, another small Florida city on the Gulf, at that time controlled the southern end of a railroad that reached towards Montgomery, the original Confederate capital. However, the small but strong Fort Pickens commanded the main entrance to Pensacola Bay. While political concerns before the outbreak of hostilities threatened to see the fort surrendered without a fight, it held out, and would never come under Confederate control, not even for an hour. Instead, the city of Pensacola would fall into Union hands early in 1862. As we continue our journey west, two cities eclipsed all others in significance. Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Both were heavily mercantile cities that, in good years, overflowed with cotton, slaves, and the goods for which both were exchanged. 
most of the trade of Alabama necessarily came through Mobile. The tributaries of the Mobile River, the Tom Bigbee and the Alabama, reached deep into the interior of the region. From the Union perspective, Mobile Bay offered the possibility of blocking off the city from sea traffic, though only with great difficulty. Moreover, the city suffered from an incomplete rail network, which made the movement of goods eastward far harder and more expensive than it otherwise should have been. The only direct connection lay to Meridian, a rail crossing far inland but not otherwise of military significance. New Orleans, though... New Orleans was the great prize and well worth fighting for. Located on one of the last points of dry ground of the Mississippi, it allowed access to the sea not only for its own state, but for every state as far as the Canadian border, from Ohio to the Minnesota Territory, and at that time also surpassed any other southern city in population and wealth. From the Confederate view, the city should be relatively easy to defend, since attacking ships would have to venture up the long Mississippi Channel and fight the current, while at the same time two established and well-armed forts blocked their way. This mighty, twisting waterway runs very roughly north to south, and ultimately drains all the land between the Rockies and the Appalachians. The Mississippi River and its main tributaries will, for most practical purposes, serve as the western border of the conflict. Some military actions occurred far indeed from its waters, but only rarely and irregularly. Steam power transformed the Mississippi from an artery of commerce into an incredible engine of economic growth, and it remains so even to this day. However, at the time of the Civil War, the western side of the Mississippi remained relatively undeveloped. This does not mean it was empty. As we've seen, Texas settlement developed along a different path, and Americans were already shaping Kansas into its own state. However, past the Mississippi, and again, its main tributaries, few urban areas existed, and almost no manufacturing. The great exception here is St. Louis, at the time something of a boomtown, larger than Chicago and equal to New Orleans, and both hugged the western shore of the Mississippi. St. Louis held a great proportion of Missouri's economic vitality, partly because it lay at the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, and it therefore served as a jumping-off point for Western settlement. It became the critical strategic point for the state, as there, well, really weren't any others. Turning back to face east, the largest tributary of the Mississippi, so large in fact that the river is technically misnamed, is the Ohio River. This forms the northern border of Kentucky, and the southern edge of the Midwestern states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. It reaches all the way towards the northern border of Virginia at that time, or what is today West Virginia. From the Confederates' perspective, this was the perfect northern edge of their dominion, which should provide a substantial buffer to any invasion. It was defensible enough, at least in part, and divided slave from free territory. However, hint hint, we will see how far that goes for them. The Ohio will, in fact, never become that important as a strategic barrier, but instead as a highway for Union supply efforts. The Ohio further has two noteworthy tributaries of its own, the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, both of which meet the Ohio near the city of Paducah. The Cumberland curves south on a meandering course towards Nashville, and the Tennessee River 
loops all the way down to the state of Mississippi before turning east towards Chattanooga and eventually Knoxville. Among other things, this means that a riverborne force could, hypothetically, take advantage of those rivers to cut right into the heart of the Deep South, placing themselves within a hundred or so landmiles of multiple state capitals, most of which were the major urban centers of their respective states. Now, we promised some time ago to take a look at Tennessee in a bit more detail, and now is the time. Tennessee will become a key military theater of the war, perhaps even more important than Northern Virginia. Broadly speaking, Tennessee may be divided into three regions geographically, politically, and even culturally. Western Tennessee was the third of the state most focused on slavery, and it looked towards Memphis in the Mississippi region. Middle Tennessee, the most urbanized and industrial portion, still had a substantial amount of slavery, although it was not as dependent on it as the West. East Tennessee, starting with the high Cumberland Plateau and extending into the Appalachians, was the most rural, and probably the poorest section despite being the first settled. East Tennessee had little slavery and few plantations, plus an independent streak, although its two notable cities at Chattanooga and Knoxville held some amount of secessionist sympathy. Importantly, of the rail connections in and out of the Confederacy, three of the four ran through Tennessee. Two of these went through Kentucky as well, one towards Columbus and Paducah in the west, and the second crossing the Ohio at Louisville. However, a third line stretched northeast from Knoxville into the backyard of Virginia. Looking southward, Two of the rail lines descended to New Orleans and Mobile, with the third going towards Atlanta. In addition, the only rail connections from the Mississippi to the Atlantic regions ran through Tennessee. Although it was always possible to divert around this, doing so would always add time and expense. In essence, then, Tennessee formed the strategic key to the entire Confederacy, though both North and South were slow to recognize it due to the lack of planning in the early war. If Confederates successfully defended that key, they could very likely hold together by moving reinforcements to any threatened point. If that advantage fell into Union hands, Northern soldiers could potentially attack in multiple theaters, and driving them back out again would become devilishly difficult. This is, of course, exactly what happened. Now we will finish up by returning to Virginia. Before we move on from geography in general, we need to understand two additional features of that state. Now remember that West Virginia was at this time still part of the same state, and in fact it reaches within a hundred miles or so of the Great Lakes. In theory, this could provide an easy jumping-off point for Confederate power, and a threat to Union communications. Yet the trouble for Virginia lay in the fact that the railroads reaching into this region ran east-west through Maryland, not through the rest of Virginia. This would give the Confederacy extraordinary difficulty, combined with the fact that the Appalachians shield this land from attack, and made supply of any Confederate force difficult, if not utterly impractical. This shall become remarkably important very early in the war, as the fact that there are now two states instead of one should attest. Last, but definitely not least, one unusual geographic feature will give the Union fits. The famously beautiful Shenandoah Valley. 
beginning well northeast of Washington, D.C. It ascends to the southwest, far in the rear of Richmond. However, no railroad runs through the valley, although stops existed at both the northern and southern ends. In theory, this could be exploited by either side to threaten the opposing capital. Furthermore, the northern terminus put an army within striking distance of Harper's Ferry. You may recall that was the major antebellum armory of the nation, and the very same one attacked by John Brown. Now that event occurred in October of 1859, and we are just now in the spring of 1861. The devil may have been in that man's work, but he would indirectly but rapidly succeed in destroying slavery, though not quite in the way he supposed. Now all that, in summation, is a very rough outline of the Confederacy's borders and most of the major strategic points in the early war, leaving aside, most notably, Texas. Now none of these basic facts eluded the authorities in Washington, or really the Confederacy, but the intricacies of strategy and the difficulty of transforming this knowledge into firm military action gave politicians and commanders alike fits. However, the Union did have one great advantage. It was still blessed with one true soldier of the era, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. Yes, the very same man who defeated Mexico and unsuccessfully ran for president. He was still kicking, or at least shuffling about, and he took the stage now to provide one final service to the country. Although weighed down with age and without the great energy that he kept even well into his later years, Scott remained mentally sharp and he accurately analyzed the strategic situation. Taking into account all the geography we've discussed, he developed the so-called Anaconda Plan. Scott's idea, based on concepts developed before the war, focused on the idea of economic strangulation. He hoped to use all that geography to put the entire South in a vice grip, controlling the Atlantic coast and splitting the Confederacy at the Mississippi. This would cut off trade and reduce the planters to penury given enough time. If successful, this could then allow a victory with very little bloodshed. Much of this strategic vision was absolutely brilliant. However, for a variety of reasons, this remained a somewhat naive dream. And we do not say that lightly, because Scott was indeed a great commander. The problem was is that Scott's intention required, in essence, a confederacy that remained inert, which allowed itself to be closed off in that manner, or alternatively which could not take action to break the headlock. It will take, in the end, over three years for the Union to complete even the basic plan. More to the point, left to its own devices, the confederacy could simply wait out the Union, largely defeating the point. To win, the Union would have to, well, win. That said, General Scott knew his craft, and when the Union did finally lay the foundations of the Anaconda Plan, the Confederate military situation declined very rapidly. It merely required hard fighting and years to achieve. But that was the long view. The political situation in 1861 did not really encourage years-long strategic planning. Neither the North nor the South intended a long war at this stage, and arguably neither ever would. The nearness of the competing capitals, and the presumed military superiority both believed in, made confrontation on the battlefield inevitable, or even a matter of desperate military necessity. 
and that confrontation would occur soon. For even without much direction from Washington or Richmond, military leaders on the borders were already moving on their own to occupy strong points or to disrupt their foes. And between the two capitals, armies were already massing for the first great clashes. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll come back next time for Amateur Hour, the mobilization of America.